you cannot take out of people's hands the weapons that allow them to be terrorists. What you have to try to do is take out of their heads the reasons why they would want to be. And that, that's a, that, that assumes that there is always a reason that is susceptible to change. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Club de Madrid's podcast series, Democracy in Practice. My name is Peter Newman. I'm a professor of security studies at King's College London and an advisor to the Club de Madrid, and I will be your host today. This year, Club de Madrid commemorates its 20th anniversary, and we want to celebrate this landmark with our members. To do so, we are launching our first podcast series, reflecting on the different challenges to democracy that the organization has addressed throughout these years. Former heads of state and government that make up Club de Madrid's membership are the engine behind our effort to strengthen the democratic practice worldwide. Through their unique leadership experience and reach, Club de Madrid members stimulate dialogue, build bridges, and raise their collective voice to put forward policy recommendations that strengthen democratic practices on issues such as inclusion, sustainable development, and of course, peace. This is the first interview of this series and will focus on countering and preventing violent extremism. It's my honor to be joined by Kim Campbell, former Prime Minister of Canada in 1993, the first and only woman to hold the position. She previously carried out an ambitious agenda as Justice Minister and was also the first woman to serve as Defence Minister of a NATO country. Welcome, Prime Minister Campbell. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, before we jump into our conversation about violent extremism, Prime Minister Campbell, you attended the original conference of the Club de Madrid, the conference on democratic transition and consolidation that gave birth to Club de Madrid. If you reflect on the time back, the hopes and perspectives for democracy, the expansion of democracy, were very different then, weren't they? Yeah, it's interesting, Peter, because I think we thought we were on a kind of a trajectory that would continue. And yet looking back now, I see it as um, a kind of uh, what turning point or, or, or impact point in democratic development that also carried within it some of the seeds for future problems. We held the conference on democratic transition consolidation, uh, partly because we thought Spain had a wonderful story to tell uh, in terms of its transition to democracy. And the Club of Madrid, half of our, our members are people who have led democratic transitions. At that time in 2001, although the conference was held right after 9-11 and all the things that, that that entailed for future difficulties, on the other hand, uh, it was at, after the end of the Cold War, um, not only had the Soviet Union ceased to be and Warsaw Pact countries were now developing democratic uh, governments, etc., but also as many of them were part of a, of a new expanded uh, European Union. 
uh, and the European Union and its uh, conditions for membership seem to provide very useful leverage to help countries uh, transform themselves into working democracies. So there was a real optimism. Uh, people talked about the third wave of democracy. And we had this as Francis Fukuyama's uh, you know, famous essay at the end of history, sort of the notion that the values of uh, liberal democracy, liberal capitalist democracy, I guess, um, had sort of won the historical argument. Mm. And now what we're seeing is that, you know, it ain't necessarily so that there are some, some, some great difficulties, but it was a very optimistic time. Also, at that period in the Club of Madrid, we had among our members quite a number of leaders who had really uh, led uh, not just transitions, but often heroic struggles for democracy. We had some among our African members and others. We had the late Sadiq al-Mahdi, who was the first person ever to be, the only person ever to be democratically elected prime minister of Sudan and, and remained a faithful member of the Club of Madrid until sadly he died just this last year, sadly of COVID at 84, and he had so much more to contribute. But there were all sorts of people who had been there in those transitions. And it seems a long time ago now, and who would have thought that countries like Poland and Hungary uh, would go backwards? Mm. Um, I did work in, in Ukraine in the early part of the century, and one used to make the, the comparison between Ukraine and Poland and how Poland was so much more economically successful because of its democratic development. So mm. I think we were, we were optimistic and hopeful in 2001, but maybe too optimistic and um, uh, not recognizing the problems that could come. So let me ask you then, uh, moving slightly forward, only a few months to 9-11, to the attacks on the United States that took place on September 11, 2001. If you think back to that time, what was going through your head as to what this would mean to your optimism and to your expectations? What were your first thoughts about the political implications of, of this particular event? Well, 9-11 happened about a month before our conference was scheduled. And we thought, oh, brother, this is terrible. We're going to have to cancel our conference. And what we found was many of the leaders, including uh, Fernando Rio Cardoso uh, of Brazil, for example, who was in office, they all said, no, it's more important than ever. So among many of the people who were participating in this conversation, 9-11 was seen as, a, as a, an a, a event that required us to think even more seriously about democratic development. Um, because it was easy to assume that the kind of terrorism that was represented by Al-Qaeda and others and you know, their, their, their refuge in Afghanistan, et cetera, was all a reflection of the problems of not having democratic governments. I think it's more complicated than that. But uh, so that didn't, it didn't um, ruin our optimism, um, but it may have led us think that democratic governance could accomplish more than than it would in fact be able to do. Now, 9-11 happened and after these attacks, of course, we had other attacks in other democracies in London, in Madrid, and many other countries across the world. Speaking today, what do you make of how democracies have responded to this, to this challenge? Well, I think there have been many positive things. Um, as you will remember, since you played a key role in 2005 to mark the anniversary of the Madrid bombings, the Club of Madrid convened uh, a global meeting on democracy, terrorism, and security. And, and uh, for those who are listening, Peter Newman was the content organizer of that and did a superb job uh, assembly, probably the largest uh, and most prestigious group of security 
pretty experts that had ever been brought together. And people used to say, this is the conversation that should have taken place after 9-11. In other words, this was a group of people pursuing what the implications were for terrorism and democracy and what democracy could do. Um, and I uh, did a lot of the, 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 the Madrid agenda that came out of that meeting, made a lot of you know, very important recommendations. And I was then, uh, then serving as the Secretary General of the Club of Madrid and made, I think that first year, 38 speeches to different organizations about the Madrid agenda and what our thinking was. So I think out of that came the view that there were in fact things that democracies could do to try and lessen the threat of uh, not just radical Islamism, but, but of, of belief systems, et cetera, that challenged democracy. One of the things I think that um, was not properly uh, recognized, I think if we go back to 9-11, was that uh, you know, George W. Bush said, you know, they hate our freedom, et cetera. Well, that's a bit of a simplistic view. What they hated was American occupa military occupation of their countries. And it was almost as if one never could um, uh, address that particular bit of realpolitik for uh, the, the force that that gave to the movements that, that rallied around radical Islamism, but, but also saw the presence of you know, infidels, uh, armed infidels on their, on their land as being uh, you know, a particularly humiliating uh, uh, factor in, 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 in their lives. So um, I think there was a great interest in trying to understand, um, trying to uh, certainly use intelligence to, uh, to follow, because one of the things about 9-11 was, of course, the, the, the dismay at discovering that there were uh, signs that the FBI and the CIA, et cetera, ought to have had, and they weren't, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing and opportunities to pursue the, the fact that there were you know, uh, people from uh, Saudi Arabia who were taking flying lessons and only learning how to take off planes. Uh, these were, were perhaps red flags that ought to have uh, engendered a, a better response. So there certainly was a lot of interest in developing the capacity of governments and countries and also the collaboration among countries uh, to identify these kinds of movements before they could uh, commit events. Now, in a lot of the conferences and, and events that you describe, it was very popular to say that this whole idea of a balance between freedom and, and, and security, between civil liberties and security, is, is the wrong way to think about it. And there isn't really anything to be balanced. We just have to be good Democrats and everything will get resolved. Where do you stand on that? Is there is there a balance between security and, and civil liberties in reflection of that period? Do you think that, that there's something to be weighed against each other? No, I think it's all part of a continuum. I think that, um, that yes, countries have to be prepared to protect themselves, but I think the notion that sacrificing uh, civil liberties uh, on the altar of security is a, is a false equation. Um, and we see that, that countries that use those arguments to suppress civil liberties um, mm. don't necessarily create all that much more stability in their own countries. Uh, are not necessarily, I mean, you can have a, a police state that makes it difficult for you know, anybody to move around and that may reduce the ability of people to organize terrorist attacks. But I think that um, that, that, that kind of equation that, that you, could, you have to choose one or the other, uh, I mean, it's music to the ears of despots Mm. But I don't think um, that it's, it's uh, very helpful. And I think 
you know, you know more about this than I do because you study it and you lead one of the, the, the best think tanks in the world in, in studying this. But I think some of the things that have come out from uh, looking at situations in Britain, you see that sometimes the most effective um, people in both understanding uh, radical uh, terrorism and, and helping to combat it are those who've lived through it themselves. And often what brings them back is actually their recognition of the value of democratic governance and freedom and liberties and, um, and you know, the risk to, to one's well-being in, um, in, in destroying that. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it, I think when people come from countries where there isn't a lot of freedom and perhaps there is, it, it's dominated by some kind of um, authoritarian ideology, whether it's a religious one or in the, you know, the, the days of, uh, uh, of the, you know, the Cold War, an ideological one, they don't always, they often find freedom, the kinds of freedoms that we think of in a democratic society as chaos. They do not understand the underlying structure, expectations, and practices that enable people to live that way, um, you know, without everything, you know, run, you know, running amok. And, and I think that's one of the biggest shocks. I, I was a Soviet specialist in my youth. And um, when, when people would come from the Soviet Union, often happy to get away from uh, repression, but they would come to Canada or the United States and they, it, to them, it just seemed so disorganized and so, uh, you know, I mean, how can you put up with this? And, you know, and they would come and they say, well, you know, and where is my job? And I'd say, well, you know, we don't really work that way. Um, we'll help you find a job. But, you know, the fact that we've taken you in doesn't mean that, you know, you can automatically assume that we will, we will give you an apartment and a job. I mean, as a matter of fact, we tended to do that for people when they took refuge. But, you know, there were a series of expectations of an underlying order. There is an underlying order. It's just different. It's the, the rules of the game, the, the democratic mindset. And so I think the, the notion that you can immediately convert people to that who've lived with a different set of expectations and a different set of certainties is a bit naive. Democratic transition is hard. Um, and uh, because it, it involves not just gain, but also loss, loss of certainty. Mm. And that's why there were people, I remember being in Russia in 2003 and being, you know, going on a little tour in, in uh, St. Petersburg. It was strange for me to say that because it was Leningrad for me, with a woman who was actually nostalgic for Stalin. Mm. And, you know, but why? Because, you know, things were certain and, Soviet Union was great, and um, freedom now, carries with it worries. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, uh, a lot of people say that the cause of promoting democracy took a hit in the years after 9-11. Would you agree with that? Well, I think there have always been people who are skeptical about uh, democracy promotion. And I think in the Club of Madrid, we've tried to be quite realistic about what you can and can't do. I think we recognize that democracies really have to be created by societies themselves. But that doesn't mean that those of us who uh, come from democratic countries can't offer something. You know, I often say that having served at all three levels of government in Canada uh, was an incredible education for me on how a functioning democracy works, which occasionally means it doesn't always work perfectly. 
And when I would go to countries, I think I remember going to Kyrgyzstan to talk about political parties, and they had 167 political parties. And I said, I think that's about 164 too many, and talked about you know what parties are and how you know that that how to make them them function. There are practical things that people who understand democratic cultures, and they vary. I mean, you know, Canada isn't governed the same way as the US or as France or Germany. We all have our different particular institutional structures. But sharing lessons that we've learned and helping to create realistic expectations can be helpful. The other thing I found also uh, that the Club of Madrid could do is that when our leaders would go to a country that was struggling, and I think of this particularly, for example, the project we did on women and peace and security in the Horn of Africa and some of these kinds of issues, that people were very touched and impressed that we thought that what they did mattered. And it often encouraged them and gave them uh, you know, a bit more um, confidence to know that, first of all, that we understood how difficult it was and that we weren't coming to preach to them and tell them, you must do this, you must do that, but simply, here's what our experience is and maybe you will find some resonance in it. But that we really care. We, 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 we really um, think what you're doing is important. And I think that's one of the underlying philosophies of democracy promotion, if I can call it that, is first of all, the realism that you can't just go and you know, impose your institutions on other people. And you see this as the experience of colonialism, you know, the underlying tensions between the indigenous institutions, which colonists often wish to pretend didn't exist, and, and the, the, the lasting social damage that, that comes from that. But it, so it's not just that, but it's also the notion that democracy in other countries matters to us. You don't want to be a democratic island in a world of despotism. That, that when other countries successfully create democratic institutions and begin to create the cultures that support them, it's good for all of us. Aside from the fact that we can trade with confidence when you're trading with the country that has the rule of law. I mean, that's why, why trade agreements take place between countries that have confidence in each other's uh, governance and legal systems. But so it, there are just many ways in which, in terms of our own security, our own prosperity, what other countries do matters. And the challenge is to figure out how you can be a constructive supporter uh, and not an arrogant imposer. You know, we used to say democracy uh, it cannot be imported, but it can be supported. Now, you already talked about this. You were the Secretary General of the Club de Madrid throughout a period in which the organization led a series of programs on how democracies could best address violent extremism whilst preserving democratic values. The club worked, for example, in Lebanon, in Tunisia, in Nigeria, amongst other countries. The focus during that period was mostly on groups like Al-Qaeda, Islamist terrorism, but Western countries, of course, recently have also seen a surge in other kinds of extremism, particularly far-right extremism. And I'm sad to say, even in happy, peaceful places like Canada that have a global reputation for being, well, quite cold, but pretty close to the perfect society, we have seen the rise of far-right extremists. Why is that? You know, it's easy to look at a country like Canada and say, well, how could they have these problems? Yeah, but exactly. we are not perfect and, and, and no democracies are perfect. Um, and we are susceptible uh, through the internet and social media to the communications of other countries. And it's so much easier now for people to be radicalized either by 
Rams half a world away or by right-wing extremists in various you know, U.S. websites and, and, and things. And we know the militia movement in the United States has been going for a long time. So there are lots of sources of this kind of uh, thinking. And I think that, you know, Canada is, is uh, you know, because of modern uh, communication technology that our young people, not just young people, uh, have access to that. And when people feel that the situation in their lives is not commensurate with what their expectations might be, they often look for explanations. Press you a little bit further on this because you're of course right. It doesn't just happen in Canada and not particularly in Canada. A rise in far-right extremism in terms of terrorism. We've also seen the, right, uh, the rise of um, right-wing extremist parties in almost every democracy. Is that just because of the internet or is there, is there a wider discontent perhaps in Western societies about how society functions. Why is it happening now? And why is it happening across the Western world? Well, I think you know, serious social scientists have identified the negative impact of rising inequality. Hmm. And I think if we go back to, uh, in the United States, to the Reagan era, and the notion that you know, government is a problem, not part of a solution, and the, the efforts in uh, some Western democracies to uh, reduce the ability of governments to uh, to address social issues and deprivations, et cetera. And a lot of the myths around those policies, you know, the whole idea of trickle-down economics, it doesn't really trickle down to anybody except the pockets of people who are pretty <laughs> high up at the top, mm. um, that, that this economic inequality um, is, is, is a very erosing, eroding uh, feature in a, in a democratic society, that, it, that it, it takes away from people's confidence and, and uh, 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 satisfaction with, with the country. I mean, those of us who grew up in the, in the post-war baby boom, when there was a, just a, an explosion of prosperity, um, didn't have that feeling. Uh, also, the, the holdover from the wartime economies, when governments felt a responsibility, uh, you know, there were, you know, pensions for veterans coming back, and in Canada, we had the, the child, uh, the, 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 uh, the child allowance, etc., all of these things to help people get back on their feet. But as those policies began to be eroded, I think for a lot of people, that people felt they were left behind. So I think we, we, have, we have that. And, and, and it's so interesting because every time somebody does a study about what happens when you give poor, how to help poor people, you give them money. What's really interesting is that not only does the employment rate not go down, it actually goes up because you forget that people need a certain basic level of income to be able to participate in the workforce. If you don't have money for transportation, if you don't have money for a decent suit of clothes, you know, if, if you don't, I mean, these are things that, that can be a barrier to actually being able to participate even at a fairly um, uh, low level in the workforce. Mm. So, uh, so th 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 those are those issues. But I think, um, I, th I think also, um, Aside, aside from, from, from inequality, I think that there are a lot of social changes that have taken place that some people interpret as losses for themselves. Um, you know, if you're a man and you're not happy, it's easy to point to women and say, look, the, you know, these women have my jobs or these immigrants have my jobs or somebody else is responsible for my problem. The incredible change in our social values in terms of um, how we view the families, 
uh, I think the very admirable, uh, you know, recognition of the hu basic humanity of, of LGBTQ people and their need to be uh, totally, you know, enfranchised uh, in, in our society and, and the, the injustice of, of discrimination. These, from my perspective, are, are incredibly wonderful developments. But if, if you are, there are still a lot of very conservative religions uh, that don't accept these views. And people often see these uh, expansions of human rights as losses for themselves. And I always say that one of my fundamental principles is I never trust a politician or a political leader who f appeals primarily to my anger. Because we all have buttons you can press. You know, I mean, I'm from British Columbia, which is a wonderful part of Canada, but it's far from the national capital. And if you want to press my buttons about how, you know, we don't get no respect, you know, we're too far away and people think we're flaky and we're just jet lagged when we get to the capital, this kind of thing. You know, you could, you could always find a button to push for somebody. Hmm. And it's a very uh, easy thing to do to get people excited and riled up and they follow you. But then what do you do? And so when you've got a bunch of angry people, um, you've got a very dangerous uh, vehicle there uh, that often can be used, whether it's to storm the Congress or uh, uh, in some way disrupt their society. So I think that, that this, is, this, is, this is a very uh, worrisome, this kind of demagogic politics. And yeah. those of us who, who are old enough to, for whom the history before World War II is real, even if we weren't there, watching a repetition of the kinds of things we saw in the rise of fascism, not just in Germany, but in other countries in Europe, um, scares us, but it doesn't seem to scare some other people who are engaging in them. Now, of course, you could say that in, in the United States, for example, you recently had an entire presidency based on pushing buttons. That was the essence, if you want, of the Trump presidency. What would be your advice to, as a former head of government, what would be your advice to political leaders? How should they communicate? How should they speak to people in situations where you have that perhaps inevitable, profound social change, where you will have some, uh, some people who perceive themselves as losers of this? How would you address that as a political leader? Rather than pushing buttons, how instead? Well, I think, first of all, the policies of your government ought to be reflective of that sense of inclusion and to try and address the reasons why people are, are left out. Um, in other words, if you look at, at some of the governments in the United States that are very supportive of companies that have you know, pillaged uh, communities, mining communities, uh, communities where people have suffered serious economic loss, and they have been uh, aided and abetted by, by public policies that have fed into this social uh, alienation. And, you know, I, I think that, that it is really important to, you know, to walk, walk the talk, not just talk the talk, to, to really understand that uh, you can't expect people uh, not to be susceptible to conspiracy theater theories and button pushing if their situation is pretty hopeless. And uh, so I think, you know, the, you, you, you reap what you sow in a sense. And I think the importance of trying to create a sense of shared community and, and, and to 
a, a sense that one person's gains are not another person's loss, that we don't live in a zero-sum community, that we can uplift one another. Um, I think there will always be tensions where there are changes in social values that overtake some people's readiness for them. Um, but even those, ten, time tends to, um, I think, ameliorate that. I think as we get more used to a new reality, uh, it becomes less, less challenging, unless somebody wants to manipulate our fear of that change. But I think the bottom line is there are people out there who are not interested in democracy, whose interest in democratic institutions is the use they can make of them to manipulate and get power and control, uh, to aggrandize themselves, to enrich themselves. And, and that is something that we have to be on the lookout for. I mean, I don't think Donald Trump really had any interest in policy. In fact, what's interesting about him is that for all he promised to do it, he probably could have done a lot more if he'd been more efficient. But basically what he wanted was to be president and to, you know, aggrandize himself. And uh, and he did whatever was necessary to keep, you know, like appointing judges, et cetera, to keep control of, of the party. But he didn't really have a, a, an agenda beyond himself, I think, being president and all that that could uh, accrue to him. Now, I want to ask you about something you mentioned before, because it's another perhaps dilemma for people um, involved in promoting democracy. It used to be um, basically a cliche to say, uh, the more speech, the better. Uh, the best thing is to create a marketplace of ideas where everyone can speak, everyone can speak as much as they want, the more people participate, the better. Now, in recent years, of course, we've had social media, which is in many respects that sort of marketplace of ideas where people speak and they speak a lot. And we suddenly realize they sometimes also then end up promoting hate, promoting division, and that some of the media uh, may have a harmful impact on, on inclusion in society, on the stability of a of a society how should we deal with that do we have to regulate that more do we have to crack down more should we work with internet companies what are your thoughts on that well i think to the extent that that countries um in other media uh have some regulations at least even in canada they do against hate speech uh that that's something you could do but i think one of the things we have to recognize is our notion that all of this social media etc is simply just you know, an open public forum that maybe uh, has a lot of unpleasant speech in it is quite wrong because in fact, it is a highly engineered form of communication whose algorithms are designed to augment conflict and division. And I think as we are becoming much more knowledgeable about that, it's not just, you know, I mean, I think if, if, if there weren't any algorithmic uh, functions in it to direct people towards certain kinds of communications. Mm. It actually might be much less dangerous because many of the more negative things might not get any get as much following as they get now. But we now know that in fact it's built in, and there have been some you know very useful documentaries like you know, the what is it called the social problem? Um, uh, I forget what it is, but 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 I mean it's. We know this now, and 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 also the the deliberate use of disinformation. You know, Hillary Clinton just wrote an op-ed saying that we have to find a global way of dealing with disinformation. And I think, you know, as Hannah Arendt said, one of the uh, the, the 
main, main functions of, of, of a totalitarian uh, regime is to convince people that there is no truth or falsehood. I mean, that it's not just that you're not getting the truth, but that there is no truth. And I mean, that so people sort of give up thinking that they're that they can ever know the truth because every time you think you have the truth they say well you know that's just a, a conspiracy you know there are people conspiring to tell you this and it isn't really true so, so i think rediscovering you know what factual basis of, of arguments are and finding some way of of regulating against those who are deliberately not i realize i realize as i'm saying this that it's not as simple as it sounds mm -hmm. but i think that that the deliberate monetization of disinformation i mean the other thing too is the social media they do this to make money you know this is this is you know the more eyeballs watch a message the more they can charge so there is a huge financial incentive for some of the worst forms of manipulation disinformation and distortion uh, and and augmenting conflict uh, through the use of algorithms and directing people in these ways to keep them glued to the screen. It's not a benign, you know, isn't this great? We have free long distance phone calls and we don't have to pay for it. We can talk to anybody. It's not that mm. simple. And would you say we were almost a little bit naive about this in the 1990s when we believed that, you know, these modern communication technologies would bring peace and harmony and exchange and people would be happy and talking more to each other, which would be a good thing. Well, there is a man whose name I forget. Is it uh, Martin who, who actually wrote early on about the, the destructive potential of the internet, mm -hmm. uh, even before we knew what the internet was. Uh, so there may have been some wise uh, people uh, of a dystopian or highly technical bent who, who could see it coming. I think most of us were. Um, it is hard for us to imagine. Um, mm. and, and every new form of communication, um, you know, going back to the ancient Greeks who were, were unhappy about written communication because they felt that was going to destroy their oral culture, culture that had relied on people, you know, memorizing the works of Homer and being able to present them. Uh, that if you could write things down, you know, it's like London taxi drivers using a GPS, you know, where we've lost this capacity to have somebody master the whole, uh, the whole street map of, of London. Uh, so there are always sort of naysayers, and it's easy for someone to say, well, this is going to create problems for people to say, well, you're just, you know, this is natural that you would feel this way. But I think the reality is that we have, we have seen uh, the danger and need to deal with it. Let me just ask you a couple more questions about um, the work of the Club de Madrid before we close. Um, one of the conclusions of the summit in 2005 was that we will not end violent extremism through law enforcement and military means alone. Um, we also need to end or uh, undermine the enabling environment that allows individuals um, uh, to join these organizations. And of course, we now know that 80% or more of terrorist attacks happen in countries which experience domestic conflict, um, sometimes for other reasons. Uh, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, these are countries that are sources of a lot of terrorism, not only within these countries, but also outside. So conflict prevention really is a very important means of countering terrorism or countering the roots of terrorism. What have you learned in the last 20 years of working with the Club de Madrid about how best to, how best to prevent conflicts? 
Well, that's a, that's a huge, huge question. I think uh, not, not feeding it, uh, not, not creating circumstances. You see, you think of something like the American invasion of Iraq, which are, you know, people have described as one of the worst foreign policy follies ever. There is a kind of hubris that you can go in and disrupt societies and there will be no cost. And many of these countries where the conflict is so great are countries that have been really disrupted by foreign intervention through colonialism or through uh, uh, wars designed to uh, get even with <laughs> things that people have done. I think that, that trying to be wise about the ability or, or the, the dangers of, of uh, armed disruption of other people's society is very important. But the problem is that sometimes once, once the, uh, the, you know, the lid is off, you know, you, it's very hard to put the pieces back together again. I've, that's a sort of a mixed metaphor there, but that um, I think we sometimes have this, uh, you know, queen conception of history, that history is always moving however bumpily into a, in the direction of progress. It isn't necessarily. And there are things you can do for which there, the damage is irreparable. And the best you can do is to try and minimize the, the inevitable consequences of what you've done. And so I think a, a, a little less hubris mm -hmm. about what big, strong, you know, mightily armed democratic countries can do is important. And, you know, Canada has been involved in, in, the, in the, the war in Afghanistan uh, in the beginning. And I think, um, I think for all of us, you know, it's not that we didn't have good intentions. Um, and, you know, I don't know when the, you know, when people look back, say in another 10 years, whether the foreign involvement after, uh, you know, the Al Qaeda attacks on New York and, and, uh, and Washington and all of that, whether there was any long-term benefit to Afghanistan or not. Um, but I think, we just sometimes overestimate our ability to, to make changes in other people's countries. And we need to be more imaginative mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's really kind of like a whack-a-mole that every time you solve one problem somewhere, it comes up someplace else because the underlying energy and dynamic for that, that change and disruption is not really affected by what you do. Let me confront you with the last dilemma for today. Um, when we formulated the Madrid agenda back in 2005, we, si we said um, terrorism is a global phenomenon, so it needs global responses. And that's, I think, still true. And we also need more coordination, collaboration uh, between countries at the international level. Now, of course, the problem is that sometimes Canada doesn't only need to collaborate with France and Britain and Spain, but it also needs to collaborate with countries, especially in the fight against terrorism, whose own human rights records are very questionable mm. and who may be the source of the problem as much as they are part of the solution. So how do you manage, how do you negotiate that relationship with countries that you need to have relationship with because they help you in the fight against terrorism, but that you realize, first of all, engage in practices that you disagree with, but that may also be to some extent the cause of the problem. 
Well, I think that's, you know, those are, are kind of almost judgment calls that you have to make on a case by case basis. You know, uh, if, if we have this kind of cooperation, what is the ultimate uh, goal? I think, I think, you know, that's what Realpolitik is all about is trying to uh, make judgments that, that don't, that don't paralyze you. In other words, where you, where you, you don't, you don't find yourself unable to do anything but that help you to be realistic about what your expectations are and also not to, um, I mean, there are are all sorts of disagreements about whether it's better, you know, to, you know, work with the devil you know as opposed to the devil you don't know, whether, you know, sometimes you you can perhaps influence people uh, if you have some kind of a relationship with them. But, you know, Canada's even had a challenge dealing with the United States. I mean, with, with, with the United States under Donald Trump, it created, you know, huge challenges. And I think one of the interesting things about this whole question of, uh, of terrorism is the, you know, the, the FBI has advised American, uh, American members of Congress that uh, right-wing terrorism, uh, often uh, fueled by white supremacists, is the biggest domestic uh, security problem in the United States. But people don't want to hear it. And it's so politically, it's, it's very difficult. And we have this challenge in, in Canada, although we don't have the same resistance to people wanting to, to hear it. But so a lot of times when we, when we are interacting with countries that have questionable behaviors, um, you, know, you have to also get people to focus on what those are and to think of them as being important. And I think um, you know, there's a lot of denial and wishful thinking that goes into public policymaking around the world. And, but also, you know, I've, I've said that you have to understand what you, what you can, in fact, accomplish. And I don't know that there will ever be an easy formula for a country to follow to say, I, I need to work with this country because I think their cooperation will help us deal with, with a threat to us, but it may also turn a blind eye or suggest some kind of tolerance for a form of behavior that is detrimental to that society. I don't know that there will ever be a simple formula for that. Mm-hmm. I think acknowledging the problem is a first step. Uh, acknowledging that there is this uh, you know, unattractive, uh, disruptive, uh, unacceptable, immoral kind of behavior. Um, but I think the way the world works, we don't always get to have um, policies that are 100% consistent with our values. We should always try to maximize that consistency. But, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, dealing with China, for example. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of the textbook case of, of having problems, um, you know, reconciling, you know, economic uh, uh, importance and even some kinds of security uh, cooperation, but also in the face of very serious uh, human rights abuses. Um, I don't have an answer, except that I think it's important to acknowledge the question and constantly seek to try and find ways of maximizing the consistency between your values and behavior. So as we're reaching at the end of our podcast, um, here's my final question. Uh, looking back in 100 years, what do you think historians will make of this 20-year period of the so-called war on terror? How will they, how will they look at this? Well, I suppose it will depend on how successful we are mm. to address its causes. 
I hope they will look at it as a period of uh, you know, disruption and threat that mobilized democracies and communities around the world to address the underlying causes and trying to provide some security to people. But you know, as you well know, terrorism is, is not something that you can ever completely eradicate because it doesn't require the kinds of resources that any government or society can guarantee to keep out of the, the hands of people. That uh, in a country like the United States where you know, there are more guns than people, um, but even if you don't have guns, I mean, in London, I mean, people have been attacked with knives and machetes. I mean, you cannot take out of people's hands the weapons that allow them to be terrorists. What you have to try to do is take out of their heads the reasons why they would want to be. And that, that's a, that, that assumes that there is always a reason that is susceptible to change. I think at the end of the day, there are always will be people for whom fighting against the status quo, pushing against um, uh, the, you know, the existing regimes will always have an attraction. And all we can do is to try to minimize the number of people for whom that is the case and perhaps maximize the ability of those around them to call the alert, to sound the alert uh, when they see a danger uh, growing in their community. Thank you. Uh, we have now reached the end of the first podcast in our Club de Madrid series on democracy in practice. Stay tuned. More episodes will follow. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Prime Minister Campbell. Thank you. Thanks, Peter.